Well, there's a lot to cover, a lot of ground to cover this morning. Uh, first of all, I want to thank those of you that are with us here today. Thank you for coming and being with us. Uh, it is a very unique time for us because we've had to make some very, very uh, important and uh, heavy decisions about what we're doing here today. Uh, we, we stand here before you knowing that uh, we have critics uh, on both sides, and many of them, of course, even in our own congregation, that are worried about what we've done. There are those who say that we've been, become too reckless in doing what we're doing today, while on the other side, we've uh, been told that we've been too cautious about what we're doing. Uh, we're, we're not in fear. Uh, to be honest with you, uh, and I want to make this clear, we're not in fear of, of what's going on. What we're doing today, and the way that we're doing it, is because we don't want anyone to be uh, uh, fearful or, you know, if you have any concerns about, you know, the, uh, the pandemic or the virus as it goes, that, uh, you know, we want you to know that we're doing what we've been asked to do by the state. Uh, and we've, we've been very, very much every day looking at what is coming out of Austin. Uh, I'll be honest with you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be very honest with you today. I, I don't look at what happened, what, you know, I should, but, 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 well that's what James and, and Sean do. They, they take care of what's being said out of, out of uh, our local government, uh, but I don't listen to that uh, for a few reasons, but we'll, we'll get to that another time. Uh, but I do want to say that I listen more to what God is saying to us than what, uh, what man is saying. And uh, so even in spite of all of that, and I say this out of love to those who are watching us, uh, maybe on that side of not, you know, not uh, joining us in what we've done today. That's okay. That's all right. Uh, I stand before God knowing that we've done what we've done because we've been encouraged by him to do it. I want to share a couple of things with you. But, but before we do that, <laughs> before we do that, I, I have to remember, this is Mother's Day. And uh, those of you that are moms here, uh, I, I just want, I want to ask you all to stand, but in just a minute. Okay, now th this, is, uh, this is another thing that I'm going to add to the prayer. Uh, Alan and, and Christina uh, George over here, right over here on this side, uh, they've been with us for three years. It's, they've been a, such a blessing being with us in this congregation. Uh, they, uh, Alan's been working at uh, William Beaumont here at, uh, uh, on post, and uh, uh, they'll be moving now uh, to Florida. Today they're going. So uh, they were really hoping, you know, that we would be having a service where they could come and we could uh, certainly pray for them. So uh, Alan and Christina, we thank you so much for your faithfulness and, and for being with us today. We're going to pray for you in just a moment. And now moms... It'll be a part of the mom prayer, but, but, but separate. Okay. So those of you that are moms, I want you to all stand, if you will, because you are very special and very precious to us. I could talk to you maybe about 30, 40, 50, 60 minutes, maybe three hours about my own mom. And I want to I tell you that not a day goes by that I don't think about her. Now, she, she went home to be with the Lord back in 1976, and so that's a long time ago. But not a day goes by that I don't think of her and my dad, but especially her, because my dad was so meek and mild, and my mom was like, you know, 
She, she was the kind that could have a you know, rolling pin and come after you. So uh, I learned a lot from her. And I think some of us who have moms like that can appreciate what they've done. But I think mostly that when they have come to know Jesus as their Lord, how much they have taught us about the Lord. So moms, I thank you for that. And we're going to pray for you. And Ellen and uh, Christina, why don't you stand too? Because we're going to pray for you too. And, and Ellen's not a mom, so it's, it's a, give, give him a little bit of space. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity this morning to pray for our moms that are here and for those that are watching today uh, via live stream. We thank you so much for them. This has to be a very special day, Lord, for us. It's special because it, it reminds us, Lord, how you brought us into this world, how you cared so much to bring us into this world, that we are here today because our moms gave birth to us. They brought us into this world. They nurtured us. And, and they taught us, Lord, so much. And maybe they didn't teach us as much about Jesus as, 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 as they could have or maybe didn't know at the time. But still, we look to them as someone that you told us to bless, as, 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 as our dads and our moms, as our parents, that we are to honor them. And so we're wanting to honor our moms today. So thank you for them. Thank you for what they've taught us. Thank you for, for teaching us even more as they have come to know Jesus. And we thank you for them. Bless them today. Let their children bless them as, as it says in Proverbs 31, that they would be blessed by the very words of their own children. And let them have a wonderful day in you. And I pray thank, in thanksgiving for Alan and Christina. I pray for your protection as they travel to Florida today, as they uh, make their way uh, to their, their new home there. Father, we thank you so much, Father, for their faithfulness and being a part of our congregation here and how we ask, Father, your blessing upon them. We rejoice in you, Lord God, for all that you give us. And so every person here is, is so special and so precious to us. And so I, I thank you so much, Father, for, for Alan and for Christina, for all our moms that are here today and for everyone that's here, and those that are watching today, Lord God. There, there's a reason why we're here together. And now, Father, through the power of your Holy Spirit, teach us that in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Praise the Lord. Let's give thanks to the Lord, our God. Today. Amen. Well, I had something to share. We have... We have been struck right smack in the middle of our faces with an invisible enemy that is keeping so many people in fear. And we struggle with it because we, we want to be sure that what we do as believers in Jesus Christ will, un, will not only be the right thing physically, but it will be the most right thing spiritually. When we were driven to the point of having to do live stream services alone, the worship team here with me and the, and the technical staff here, uh, it, it took a little bit to get used to. As, as a matter of fact, last night when I was uh, uh, speaking to those that were here, uh, you know, I had been looking at that camera just, you know, 
just straight at the camera because nobody was here. And then they, all of a sudden they're right here in front. And so I'm like doing this and I'm forgetting about the camera, which is okay. But I mean, you know, I, I still need to speak to everybody that's with us. So it, it, it uh, you know, it changed a lot of what we do. But it also made us realize we are living in perilous times. And not perilous times because of a virus, even though that's a perilous thing. Uh, now, we may, you know, we may have differing opinions as to the numbers and to the things that are being said about it, both nationally and statewide and, and local. Okay, we can have those opinions, that's fine. But the fact is, there are people that are dying. There are things that we have to do ourselves. So th this meeting today was not, uh, was not uh, brought about together by being careless. Uh, it was by seeking the face of God, truly wanting to do the right thing. I didn't consult with any other pastors as to whether they were going to do anything or not. I had to consult with the Lord. That was the most important thing for me. But what has come to me to share with you, and I don't have a lot of time, but I'm going to share it very quickly with you, is how we need to kind of look at things now from God's perspective. I, heard, I read this quote on, on Wednesday night. I'm going to read it to you again. It's, it was by David Allen Hubbard, and he said this, and, it, and this was back in the 70s. He said, daily we face the possibility of disaster, given the impact of the fall on creation, the rebellion of the human spirit, and the presence of the demonic in persons and organizations. Then he said this, he said, vigilance to do what we can and trust in God to make sense of circumstances beyond our control. These are the responses that help keep us sane in a world gone crazy. Well, I'm sure the world was pretty crazy in the 70s, but it's a lot crazier now. It is a lot crazier now. And, uh, you know, we hear all kinds of things happening. Uh, we, we're, we're being told that we can't do this, we can't do that. Uh, you know, in the state of Texas, you know, they're, they're, they're calling churches essential, which I, I thank God for that. But here's the problem. Our own city is getting to a point where they're going to call us non-essential. And so that brings, us, that brings to mind where California is today. Now, uh, I was listening to a pastor from California. Some of you know him, Jack Hibbs. Uh, and he was, he was giving the state of the church uh, on, on line this week. And uh, he was stating all of these things that were happening in California, which uh, they consider the church non-essential. They consider it as part of the entertainment community. And uh, so the pastors realize that, you know, they've, they've had a meeting with the governor. They're trying to let them know that, you know, let him know that, you know, this, this is not a people, you know, because what, what they said was, you know, you're, you guys are, are going to have a, uh, you know, we, we want to keep from these large groups of people meeting that are strangers. But church is not to be strange. We're not strangers here. You know, well, that's one. That's one point. Anyway, long story short, uh, 
I mentioned California because I'm, I'm wondering if that's where we're going to be here in El Paso in the next week or, or two. So keep that in prayer. Keep that in prayer. Now, I want to read something that was written in 1946 to you. I've got to do this real quick because i still got a message for you, okay? But in 1946, C.S. Lewis wrote an essay um, in a book uh, compilation called Present Concerns. And uh, the article was entitled, On Living in an Atomic Age. And when I read this, anytime you hear atomic bomb, in, if you will, just think or say COVID virus or COVID-19. Think about it. Okay, so here it is. And, and by the way, he was, he was from, from England and he was British and, and there's a couple of British little customs that he mentions, but so you'll understand. But here it is. In one way, we think a great deal too much of the atomic bomb. How are we to live in an atomic age? I am tempted to reply. Why? As you would have lived in the 16th century when the plague visited London almost every year, or as you would have lived in a Viking age when raiders from Scandinavia might land and cut your throat any night, or indeed as you are already living in an age of cancer, an age of syphilis, an age of paralysis, an age of air raids, an age of railway accidents, an age of motor accidents. In other words, do not let us begin by exaggerating the novelty of our situation. Believe me, dear sir or madam, you and all whom you love were already sentenced to death before the atomic bomb was invented. And quite a high percentage of us were going to die in unpleasant ways. We had, indeed, one very great advantage over our ancestors, anesthetics. But we have that still. It is perfectly ridiculous to go about whimpering and drawing long faces because the scientists have added one more chance of painful and premature death to a world which already bristled with such chances and in which death itself was not a chance at all, but a certainty. This is the first point to be made. And the first action to be taken is to pull ourselves together. If we are all going to be destroyed by an atomic bomb, let that bomb, when it comes, find us doing sensible and human things. Praying, working, teaching, reading, listening to music, bathing the children, playing tennis, chatting to our friends over a pint and a game of darts, not huddled together like frightened sheep and thinking about bombs. They may break our bodies. A microbe can do that. But they need not dominate our minds. End quote. They need not dominate our minds. That is what has happened. A global pandemic, prophetically, is a global conditioning. It is a global brainwashing. 
and how many people are still living in fear. They see numbers. I see God in control. I need to trust that God who knows us and who's known the beginning from the end and the end from the beginning. Should we have concerns? Of course we should. We live in a fallen world. But we need to trust in the one who gives us life and who has the power to heal us and has given us the opportunity to be together today. And I thank the Lord for you all. I thank you for your patience, for allowing us to tell you where to sit. But one day soon, we're going to open all the doors. We're going to get back to the way it should be. This has been an awakening for the church. The things that didn't, the things that kind of mattered to us before don't matter as much as how we are to live for Christ until the coming of Jesus. So let's keep that in mind. So I, I hope and pray you all don't mind that I go about five minutes late, longer, okay? There's not a, there's not a second service. So, hey, we're okay. By the way, one last thing. One last thing. That, that's why I said that, because I got one last thing. And here it is. If California is going through this, this aspect, or the, the pastors and the churches in California are going through this, this aspect of, of being non-essential people, the one thing that Jack Hibbs said was, we need to obey God rather than men. That is what Peter says in Acts 5.29. We ought to obey God rather than men. Secondly, Remember what Jesus told his disciples before he ascended into heaven, after the, after the resurrection. He said, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. In California today, they are not allowed to baptize. So, so what does that tell us? Jesus said, Go baptize. The law says, Don't baptize. We ought to obey God rather than men. In James chapter 5, verse 14, James says, Is any sick among you? Let him call the el- for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. What are they going to do? Go take all those, those, you know, those, those powerful uh, water guns and put oil in them and then just, well, just, just stay there. To anoint with oil is to touch and lay hands. They're being told they can't do that in California. We're getting very close to seeing that happen here in El Paso. From what I understand, our civic leaders are going to go talk to uh, Governor Abbott to say, you know, I know what you've said about Texas, but you need to let us do our own thing here. Really? Okay. Why? Because we have tens of thousands of people that have the virus or that are, are actually positive? Or we have tens of thousands that have died in El Paso. You see what the numbers, how the numbers uh, don't get really expressed? I, now I'm sharing my frustrations, my heart, as a pastor. But pray for me. Pray for me. Because I want to be right. I want to be right. Okay, I am going to go five minutes over now. Let's go to Second Thessalonians chapter 1. <laughs> Thank you for letting me share my heart.
2 Thessalonians chapter 1. And I do have to say that uh, to do so has been very, you know, very uh, weighty for me. I haven't said the things that I said today, you know, haphazardly. I've thought about it. I've prayed about it. And uh, I want you to know where we stand in the, in the church today. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, we've been continuing this really our study of the, of the books that, uh, and the letters that Paul wrote to one church, the church in Thessalonica, a church that was a young church. Paul spent a few weeks with them, and actually in a few weeks' time, you know, they didn't have hour services or hour and a half services. Sometimes they would be two, three, four hours, and Paul would teach them uh, continually, and, and so he spoke to them about the doctrines of the scriptures, in particular about the love of God and the love of Christ and how they were to love one another, and that love was abounding in that church. What else did he teach them? He taught them about prophecy. He taught them about the coming of Jesus Christ. There were concerns by those in the church that some of their family members had uh, gone to be with the Lord, but they were worried that some people were saying that uh, they wouldn't go and the Lord would come for the church. So Paul had to correct some of these doctrines that were being spread around that church. <clears throat> so in chapter 1, he speaks to them. I should say in the first letter, he speaks to them in chapters 4 and 5 in order of the rapture of the church and then the day of the Lord. And uh, every chapter is, ends with the understanding of the return of Jesus Christ for, for the church. So as we enter into 2 Thessalonians, we, we really are just continuing on. Uh, and so Paul, in, in, in verse 1 again of 2 Thessalonians 1, says, Paul and Silvanus, who by the way is Silas, and Timotheus, who is uh, Timothy, unto the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father, circle the word our, because that's different than chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians, and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. <coughs> Excuse me. Now written shortly after Paul's first letter to the church in Thessalonica, this epistle addressed the character of a young church having to endure and suffer through much persecution, which caused some of them to think that they were already in the time of tribulation or the day of the Lord. So the cause of that concern may have been actually a letter that was thought to have been written by Paul and was circulating in the churches. The message itself would have been a false message in light of the clarity of Paul's message about Christ's return in the first letter. And so Paul's purpose in writing this letter was to explain God's program for the age and to encourage those suffering believers to remain faithful to the Lord. Now, I, I emphasize suffering believers because I know that although we have believers that are suffering for the sake of Christ worldwide, we've come to a point to kind of understand a little bit of that suffering even in our own country today. Suffering from the standpoint of hearing voices telling us what we can and cannot do. So we understand that sometimes uh, people even in the church have kind of wavered in their, in their, in their faith. 
which is, is a form of suffering, but uh, becomes worse later on. We're called to remain faithful in the midst of any kind of suffering. So when false doctrine is discovered in the church, it is imperative to immediately correct the false doctrine with the word of God. And this was certainly Paul's desire and hence the reason for such a quick response. It wasn't, it, it wasn't the day after, but there was a, a letter not long after the end of the first letter that was delivered that a second letter had to come. So, as in the previous letter, the salutation is quite similar in both verses. The only distinction being that Paul would write in this letter, unto the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says our twice there. Now, in that one word, our, we can see the preciousness of their fellowship in the God that they served. You remember now that the Lord spoke to them about their salvation. He spoke to them about their nurturing. And then he spoke to them about being, uh, 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 you know, continuing to, uh, to expand their understanding of the word of God. To be established in the faith, in other words. When that happens in a fellowship, let's say, of, like ours, that we grow more and more from just the understanding of God being just my God or the God, but now together we are one in Christ and he is our God. So there's a preciousness of, of, uh, of fellowship in the statement that Paul is making to them. So Paul and Silas and Timothy, along with this devoted church, were growing in love and in loving communion together in the faith. So that's how we want this church to grow, with that same kind of love, that we share the same God. We share the same Lord who loves us with all of his heart. Now immediately into the letter, Paul uh, speaks on the purification in growing. He speaks on purification in growing when he says in chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is meet or fitting, because that your faith groweth exceedingly, and the charity of every one of you all toward each other aboundeth. Now, take note. Your faith groweth exceedingly, and the charity or love of every one of you all toward each other aboundeth. Faith and love. Got it? Okay. Then he says, So that we ourselves glory in you, in the churches of God, for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that ye endure, which is a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God, that ye may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God, for which ye also suffer. So it is a re, uh, really a remarkable thing what some churches have taken pride in. Uh, that would be uh, before the pandemic, if you will. Churches today were taking pride in large memberships and attendance. They were taking pride in the size of their campuses, building design or architecture, their wealth, their music, their social status uh, of their membership, the prominence of their pastor. Their, you, you guys don't have to worry about that. Uh, the prominence of their pastor, their political clout, or their zeal for a certain theological cause. 
Some have boasted in trading theology for psychology, uh, which the emerging church continues to do, trading sermons for skits and entertaining productions, others in their inoffensive and non-threatening atmosphere. And these have become models for many other churches to imitate until now. Until now. There's not much to boast about during this pandemic. Not much to boast about. And I'm thankful for that. I'll tell you why. Because as I've always said, what we've had to do is a result of God awakening his church to the times in which we're living. We are truly in the last days. Some have looked at the last days and they said, well, you know, they, they say, yeah, we're, we're in the last days, but there's still a lot of life to live. There's still a lot of things that we can do. Now, when those things have been taken away from us, what becomes more important? No more sporting events. No more concerts. No more this. No more that. The Lord is saying, hey, remember me? Paul boasted in only one thing. Paul boasted in the cross of Jesus Christ. The Lord has brought us to a place where we've had to come to grips with what we consider to be essential. Essential. Jesus. So that wasn't the church of Thessalonica. They had nothing to boast about but the cross of Jesus Christ. And they grew in faith, even through persecutions and hostilities from the enemies of the gospel who came against them. They grew in the faith, even through tribulations and afflictions that may have resulted from the persecution that came against them. They didn't renounce their faith. They didn't cave in to the hostility. What they did was grow in faith during these times. I mean, let's look back at what Paul had said of this church in, cha- in, in the first letter. Go back a couple of pages to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. Notice what he said to them, of them. He said, we give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing. Notice these three things. Your work of faith, your labor of love and patience of hope, in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of God and our Father. Now, what do you see that's different from the second letter? What did I emphasize when I read the first couple of verses there in, in chapter one, uh, uh, in chapter one of, of, of the second letter? That he mentions their faith and their love. Those two things. What did he start off with in the first letter? faith, hope, and love. So in the passage I just read, Paul commented on their work of faith, their labor of love, their patience of hope, faith, hope, love. But in the introduction to the second letter, he only comments on faith and love. Why? Now think about this. Why? As we shall see, hope is the virtue that the Lord is going to restore to this very church that had already been uh, lifted up because of the patience of hope that they had. But he doesn't mention that in the second letter. 
even though it was not a long time, something happened with their hope. Obviously, because of their thinking that the Lord had already come, because of that fake letter that may have been going about, I guess we could call it fake news, they had fallen into a certain mentality. The mentality was, well, what's the use then? What's the use? You know, Peter mentions that in the last days, scoffers and mockers will be in the church saying, where's the promise of his coming? They're still doing it today. So what's the use? So we'll learn that some of those people in the church in Thessalonica actually became lazy. They weren't working. They weren't providing for their family. See, that's different than today because today we were forced into some of this. Forced into the fact that some people can't provide for their families. That some people aren't able to work today because, the quote-unquote, they have non-essential jobs. Wow, a non-essential job. And, and all they're trying to do is put food on the table for their family. Is that not crazy? That's insane. But I digress. Paul was ready to clear that kind of thinking. That said, it would be well for us to remember that the apostle did recognize that their faith and their love grew in the midst of persecution and suffering because it purified the church. It purified the church. He still found it important to boast of them for their patience and of their faith to what they had to endure. That's, back, that's verse 4. Now let me say that he said similar things to other churches. For example, uh, what he stated to the church in Rome, in, Rome, in Romans chapter 5, verse 3. Uh, Paul said, and not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh or produces patience. Tribulation produces endurance, it, endu- it, it, it produces patience, and it produces perseverance. In a word, it produces unwavering, steadfast endurance. Unwavering, steadfast, unmoving. Paul goes on to say in verse 5 of our text that their faith and their patience produced by the persecutions and trials are the clear and plain evidence of God's righteous judgment so that they would be fit for God's kingdom. Everything that happens to us Everything that God allows is for our good. It's always for our good, and it's always for his glory. We should never forget that. And by the way, the word worthy that is used here in the text, in verse 5, the word worthy, where it says, which is a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God, for which, we also, which ye also suffer. The, the word does not mean merit. It does not mean merit that you earn it or deserve it. The Lord is fitting us. He is making us fit through suffering unto glory. That's a whole different picture than merit. We don't earn it. It's given to us by God's grace. He fits us. He makes us fit through suffering. Jesus and Peter 
both spoke about this. Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 through 12, Jesus in the Beatitudes said, Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. He says, Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Jesus said, Rejoice in the midst of, of your trials. That's what we came in here to do today. There's not one of us that isn't affected by the trials that we've been presented with this, with this, uh, with these reg, you know, regulations and directives and orders and all that because of a pandemic. We're here to rejoice in spite of it all. First Peter chapter 4, verses 12 to 14, Peter said this, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened unto you. But rejoice, inasmuch as you are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye, for the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part, he is evil spoken of, but on your part, he is glorified. They may be trying to put you down and put down Jesus in the, in, 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 in the same breath. But while they are doing this because of evil, we rejoice because God is still in control, because Jesus is still Lord and will always be Lord. And so in a word, let's just say that the Lord fits us through suffering unto glory by the worthiness of Jesus Christ. It is the worthiness of Jesus Christ, not our worthiness. It's his worthiness. Who died on the cross on our behalf. So there's the preparation of, of you know, of our hearts through these struggling times. And then there's the preparation for glory. Paul speaks about that in verses 6 through 10 of 2 Thessalonians 1. He says, Seeing it is a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you, which means to repay tribulation to them that trouble you. And to you who are troubled, rest with us, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God, and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the, and from the glory of his power, when he shall come to be glorified in his saints and to be admired in all them that believe because our testimony among you was believed in that day. Now, there are a number of people today and even some professing Christians that actually question the righteous judgments of God. They've been conditioned into believing that the love of God and the justice of God contradict each other. 
But what must be remembered is that while God is a God of love and a God of mercy and grace, he is above all a holy and a righteous God. Above all, he is holy. Now, when we read 1 John 4, verse 8, and, and John says, He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. Well, of course he's correct. He's right. This is truth. God is love. We, how did we learn to love one another if we didn't learn it from God who loved us and who loved the world so much that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life? So yes, God is love. But he's also described by John in, uh, in, a, in an earlier verse, uh, in 1 John 1, verse 5. He says, This then is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you that God is light. So he's not only love, but he's also light. And in him is no darkness at all. So that reveals another aspect of his character, of his attributes. But the greatest attribute that is given to us in Scripture has to be what Isaiah tells us in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3. As he gives and describes this vision that God has given to him, and he says, as he's looking at the throne room of God, and he says, one, and one cried unto another, being the, 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 uh, uh, the angels, he, he said, they said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now, we never see Jesus described in Scripture as love, 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 even though, you know, he is love. We never see him described as light, light, light. Or merciful, merciful, merciful. But we do see him described as holy, holy, holy. That's an indicator that that is the most crucial attribute of God. He is holy, holy, holy. Our God is just. Our God is righteous. Our God is true. Our God is awesome. Our God is mighty. He is powerful. He's gracious. He's merciful. He's love. But he is holy, holy, holy. And one grand principle and doctrine that we need to resolve in our understanding about the God that we serve is that he cannot love righteousness without hating sin and judging it. He cannot love righteousness without hating sin and judging it. And one reason this is not always understood is due to man confusing vengeance with revenge. Vengeance and revenge are distinct. Simply understood the purpose of vengeance. Now remember that the scripture tells us, vengeance is mine. God says this, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. So simply understood the purpose of vengeance, and that's used by Paul in verse 8 here of our text is to satisfy God's law. The purpose of revenge is to appease or placate a 
personal grudge, usually fueled by bitterness or resentment or hatred. That's totally different. Vengeance is to satisfy God's law. You see, God doesn't hold grudges like we do sometimes. He certainly doesn't hold grudges against lost sinners. And we need to praise the Lord for that, don't we? That he doesn't hold grudges against us. On the contrary, he sent his only begotten son to die on a cross for them. And to this day, he implores sinful man to return to him. Return unto me, saith the Lord. But as we see in verse 8, if they chose, if they choose not to know God and not to obey the gospel, then all that is left for the Lord to do is to judge them. He judges them righteously, and he will judge them justly. Now, what I'd like for you all to do, not now, but later sometime today when you have a moment that doesn't take long, I want you to read Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 32. This is an exercise I give every time I mention this. So maybe you've already done it. Do it again. And here's the reason why. Because we see in this passage of Scripture, Romans 1, verses 18 through 32, a description of those mentioned in verse 8 of our text. In flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 9, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Those who today practice willful ignorance and willful disobedience. That is what the description is in verses 18 through 32. Now let me read you the bookends, verses 18 and 32. Verse 18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold or suppress the truth in unrighteousness. That's how that passage begins. Very clearly, the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. He closes that passage in verse 32 by saying, of these people who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. That is a complete rejection of God, of God's laws, of God's purposes, of God's plans, of God's love, of God's grace, of God's mercies. Now, as for believers, the question can be asked, will God vindicate his own? In other words, will God support and defend his own? <laughs> the simple answer is yes. Look at the beginning of verse 7 of our text. Go back there for just a moment. And to you who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. To you who are troubled, believer, who are going through times of struggle and trial, he pays us with rest. And once again, the reminder, oh, by the way, verse 10, going back down to verse 10. 
when he shall come to be glorified in his saints and to, admi- and to be admired in all them that believe in that day, because our testimony among you was believed. So it said, yes, you know, God will vindicate, God will support, God will defend his own. And once again, the reminder is that ultimately suffering through the afflictions of persecution is in fact a blessing and a privilege, and it is not a burden. It is not a burden for us. Think of what Paul says in Romans 8, verse 18. He says, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not to be worthy, or are not worthy, I should say, are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 16 through 18 says, For which cause we faint not. But though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. For our light affliction. By the way, if you've ever read the list of things that Paul said happened to him, the things that he had to go through and the things that he suffered, I mean, even to the point of death, that's light affliction to Paul. Why? Well, let's read why he says it. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, it's temporary, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Things that are seen are temporary. What we don't see, that's eternal. The things that we are storing up in heaven. Store up your treasures in heaven, not on the earth. Because on the earth we only see the things that we see, and they won't last. But the things that we build up in heaven are eternal. And we shall be eternal when he changes us from corruptible to incorruptible, from mortal to immortal. God is preparing judgment for the wicked with the same measure used against believers. I've oftentimes talked about that principle that says, you know, when a person goes out to set a trap for somebody, dig a hole so that somebody else will fall into it, the Lord says they'll fall into their own trap. Well, Pharaoh, for example, Pharaoh of, Israel, of, of Egypt drowned Israelite babies, didn't he? <laughs> what happened to him? The Lord God drowned the whole Egyptian army when they went after M- Moses and the children of Israel that had left Egypt. What about Saul trying to kill David with a spear? Saul was killed with a sword. With the same measure that is used against believers. God will bring judgment upon those. We don't have to worry about that. We continue to pray for those who are lost. But God's judgments will always be righteous. And they'll be just. Now verse 10 of our text makes it clear that the events dealing with God's judgment are distinctly different from the events stated in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, which is the rapture of the church. So consider these contrasts. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Jesus returns in the air. 
In 2 Thessalonians, he returns to the earth. In 1 Thessalonians, Jesus comes secretly for the church. In 2 Thessalonians, he comes openly with the church. Don't forget what Jude writes in Jude verses 14 and 15, when he says, And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. The Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints. That would be the saints who he came to get seven years previous to that at the rapture of the church. Takes us home, takes us to our, you know, to, to, to our mansions there that are connected to the Father's house because that was a, there's going to be a marriage feast, a wedding feast of, of the Lamb and all. And then we rejoice with the Lord. And then he says, okay, we've got to go down to the earth again for a thousand years, but you're going to come with me. And we're going to set things right on the earth to execute judgment upon all. In 1 Thessalonians 4, believers escape the tribulation, in other words. In 2 Thessalonians, unbelievers will experience tribulation and judgment. In in 1 Thessalonians 4, the rapture will occur at an undisclosed time. In 2 Thessalonians, the return of Christ to judge occurs at the end of the tribulation period known as the day of the Lord. And so as we continue on in verses 9 and 10 of 2 Thessalonians 1, he says, Who shall be punished, speaking of those on the earth at the time when he comes, with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power, when he shall come to be glorified in his saints and to be admired in all them that believe, because our testimony among you was believed in that day. Preparation for glory for the church. And it leads us to proclaim and glorify Christ today. And this is how he ends the chapter when he says in verses 11 and 12, Wherefore also we pray always for you that our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power, that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and ye in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the simple message of this final passage of chapter 1 is this. Live out what you have learned from the Word of God. Live out what you have learned from the Word of God. That the Lord counts you worthy of this calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and ye in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. This should be the result now for every believer of the... This should be the result of this forced lockdown and governmental overreach brought about by this global pandemic, if I could make this current, that which we now see, as I've mentioned before, 
is the awakening of the church of the living God in these last days. To cast aside the complacency and self-righteous smugness that has kept many in some dependency in the things of this world than full dependency and trust in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I've shared this passage often, and I'll share it again. What John says in 1 John 2, verses 15 through 17, he says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. Those three things is what brought man down to the very depth of sin. Those three things. Yet people are loving the world again. Listen, the world passes away, the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. He that doeth the will of God abideth forever. And jump down to the last chapter of 1 John 5, and it's, uh, the last chapter is chapter 5. In verse 19, notice what he says. And we know that we are of God, and the whole world lieth in wickedness. Now, I, I use that scripture because I want you to see that clear distinction that as believers now in Jesus Christ, we are of God, the whole world lieth in wickedness. Who wants to put their foot in the world? Because people today are saying, I want one foot in the church and one foot in the world. But John even tells us we're in the world, but we're not of the world. We're in the world, but we're not of the world. I mean, this is something that Paul tells us and John tells us. And, you know, Jesus tells us. We're not of this world. We're of the kingdom of God. And always remember that the Lord will always complete the work begun in us. God hasn't said, listen, I'll start you off, but now you finish the work. No, listen to what Paul says in Philippians 1 verse 6. He says, being confident of this very thing, that he which has begun a good work in you will perform it, which means he will perform it and complete it and fulfill it and finish it until the day of Jesus Christ. He is working in us now until the day of Christ. So this is what we are to do then. Let's give thanks to the Lord each and every day of our lives. Let's surrender to his word. Let's ask the Lord for wisdom. Let's look for opportunities to witness now that we are being able to get out a little bit more. I'd like to go get a haircut one of these days. Just thought I'd mention that. We need to go out and we need to be the light in a dark world. And we need to wait patiently for God's purposes. These things we do by God's grace, not by our goodness, but by God's grace. There's two verses of uh, passages of scripture I want to give you as we close. The first one is Isaiah 48, verse 22. It's a very simple little verse. It says, There is no peace, saith the Lord, 
unto the wicked. There is no peace, saith the Lord, unto the wicked. The only way to know true peace is to know the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ. The Prince of Peace is the one who calls out to us and he says, as he did in Matthew chapter 11, now close with this, verses 28 through 30, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. In other words, be yoked together to Christ. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Why is his yoke easy and light? Because he carries us with that yoke. He's carrying us through this lockdown. He's carrying us through this pandemic. I hope and pray he carries us through the wisdom that we need to gain from it all. To understand what the truth really is about what's going on in the world. See, what some people are discovering, I'm going to go ahead and use that extra five minutes that I told you about. What, 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 what we're discovering in all of this, as I mentioned earlier, that this, there's a global conditioning going on. But it's because, you see, the scriptures tell us, book of Revelation is very clear, book of Daniel is very clear. The things that Jesus said in Matthew 24, uh, I'm sorry, yeah, Matthew 24, and Luke 21, and, and Mark 13. The things that Jesus said is happening today. And it's only the beginning of sorrows. It's preparation for the man of sin to be revealed. The man of sin is the Antichrist, not Jesus Christ. All of this has to happen. Read Revelation 13 and you realize that there will be a one world government. That there's a gonna, there, there is a push even to, to this day. And think about this in about a week's time. I believe it's going to be on May the 14th that the Pope is going to make some grand statement to kind of bring together all faiths and all religions. Well, Revelation 13 says there will be a one world religion. And of course, it speaks of a one world leader. That's what all this is preparing for. And some people are just waking up to that because they haven't studied prophecy. We have studied prophecy. We should be ready. And then we should also know that we take our precautions, we watch, we wait, but we also work. Occupy, Jesus said, till I come. Occupy. Occupy.